I can't think of a better song to sing, to preface what we're going to discuss this morning, and that is some events that surrounded the cross. Some words that our Lord and Savior spoke from the cross. Words are important, aren't they? And there can be no words that are more important than those words that are spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ from the cross. Jesus never wasted a word. He never uttered anything meaningless. And every statement he made from the cross was a word from heaven itself. And this morning we're going to consider possibly some of the most precious and personal and powerful words ever spoken on the face of this earth. And may God grant us the grace this morning to meditate on this as we look at God's Word. Throughout all of the Gospel, we see Jesus repeatedly referred to the hour. The hour. Several times during the Gospels, you see Jesus almost being arrested. And the Gospels say, but it was not yet his hour. At the wedding at Cana, Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. In the upper room, he prayed, my hour has come. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, the hour is at hand. It's what happens in this hour that Jesus is speaking of that holds the entirety of our salvation in this hour. The hour that he referred to was here. It had arrived. And what an hour, what an hour it was. It was his hour. And it was your hour. And it was Satan's hour. It was an appointed hour. It was an hour upon which the Father and His Son had set their hearts on from all eternity. All of prophecy pointed to this hour. It was the hour for which Jesus was born. It is the apex of history. It is the highest point of history. It's not only world history, but redemptive history. It's the hinge. This hour is the hinge on which all of history turns. It's the hour in which Christ was made an offering for our sin on the cross. Jesus began his high priestly prayer in John 17. This was at the end of a long period of time in the upper room, beginning with the Passover meal that evening. He begins his high priestly prayer with, Father, the hour has come. This was late Thursday night when he prayed that prayer, perhaps one or two o'clock in the morning on Friday morning. 
And following that final prayer that Thursday night, Jesus left with his disciples and they made their way through the streets of Jerusalem, the narrow streets of Jerusalem. On the way to the Mount of Olives, I could see that picture in my mind because we were in Israel in 2009 and we walked those very streets that Jesus walked. And when I read this story, I could see him in the middle of the night walking with his disciples through the streets of Jerusalem toward the Mount of Olives. And we also had an opportunity to go there and even go into the Garden of Gethsemane and sit among thousand-year-old olive trees and pray as we looked over across the Valley Kidron to the East Gate. It was a very moving, moving experience. So I have the benefit, along with some of my friends in here, of having been there and seen that. It's important to be able to affix a picture in your mind of a story that is about to be told. Many writers will do that when they are writing a novel. They'll take you into a room and they will describe the room for you and then begin their story. So I have the benefit of having been there. I can put some images with this story. Specifically now, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is where Jesus would be betrayed and arrested. Thus begins that hour that he talks about. It begins with the false accusations of the Jews and the trial before the high priest, the appearance before Pilate, and then the crucifixion. By six o'clock that morning, Jesus had been sentenced, and by nine o'clock, he had been crucified. As the soldiers arrive at Calvary that morning with Jesus and the two criminals, there was a very large crowd gathering. If you read this through the Gospels, you'll see they keep referring to large crowds, to multitudes, and not only multitudes, but great multitudes. So there's a big crowd there. It's especially large right now at this particular time of the year. In fact, there are thousands of people in Jerusalem that are not normally there. They're there for Passover. If you look in Acts chapter 2, you see it tells who were there. There were people, there were Parthenians were there, the Medes and the Elamites. There were people from Mesopotamia and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Libya and Cyrene and Rome. The Cretans and the Arabs, the Jews and the proselytes. There were people from all over the region there. And as I looked at that and read that, I thought of it as a scene similar to the Super Bowl in New Orleans or New Year's Eve in Times Square where people are packed into that city for Passover. The Bible calls this a great multitude of people. The Romans located the crucifixion next to a public road for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to make a public display of Roman justice. 
We know it was by a busy road because Mark 15, 29 says, those passing by were hurling abuse and wagging their heads. So the location of the cross was not a destination. It was on a public street, high traffic. The Bible refers to the crucifixion as a spectacle in Luke 23, 48. Now, many times when people talk about the cross, they spend a lot of time talking about the physical suffering of Christ. I think that's an error. And as horrible as it is, as horrible as that was, it distracts from the real suffering of Christ, which was when God abandoned him and turned his back on him. The last three hours on that cross, when it was so dark that you couldn't see your hand, That was the suffering of Christ, not the physical suffering. Remember, there were two criminals, one on either side of him, that were enduring the same suffering as Christ. This actual scene at the cross is contrary to what we've been given. It's not that sentimental scene with the cross of Jesus in the middle, elevated above the other two, backlit with music playing in the background similar to this. This is not it. There's no indication that the crosses were any more than a foot off the ground. And they were close enough together that a conversation could go on between Jesus and one of the criminals. And Jesus and Mary and Jesus and John. And with all that noise going on and all those crowds, they had to be close enough to be able to hear him. In reality, this scene was anything but sentimental. I suspect that there was screaming and crying and pleading. The Bible says cursing from the criminals. I tried to imagine allowing someone to put a nail through my hand or through my foot without screaming. I said this morning, I bit my tongue this week and screamed. I can't imagine having a nail through your hand without screaming and pleading, begging. We know that there was shouting and jeering and mocking from the crowd. The Bible tells us that. This was a loud scene. It was violent. It was brutal. It was bloody. It was cruel. It was inhumane. It was man at his worst. It was a scene of horror. It was a mob scene. Noisy. There was a fire built there by the soldiers, smoke hanging in the area. What's amazing is that Christ never said a word, never uttered a sound. Well, let me ask you a question, provocative, I hope. Do you think Satan was there? Do you think Satan was at the cross? We know that Satan is a created being, just like you and I. He's not omnipresent. He can only be at one place at one time. He has to be somewhere. 
and given all of the places in all of creation that, that he could be at this day. Do you think he would miss this? Do you think he would miss his opportunity to bruise the heel of Christ? Genesis 3, 5. What is happening at that cross right now is the most important thing to Satan. This was his last stand. It was his last opportunity to preserve his very existence. And he knows it. Would he be anyplace else? John 12, 31 says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world, meaning Satan, as Jesus is saying this, now is the ruler of this world, now will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this signifying by what death he would die. The messengers of Satan are in that crowd shouting at Jesus, taunting him to save himself. In Mark 15, 29, listen to this. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, listen, save yourself and come down from that cross. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from that cross that we may see and believe. Satan, I believe, is in that crowd. There is nothing he wants more than for Jesus to save himself. There's nothing that Satan wants more than for Jesus to come off that cross, even if he had to create a miracle to do it. Another provocative question. Do you think the holy angels were there? There's nothing in Scripture that says the angels were there that I know of. Scripture is silent on this. In the same way that's silent on the fact of whether or not Satan was there. It says nothing. But do you think they were there? Jesus was doing the will of God. And wherever God's will is being done, heaven is there. Let's see what the Bible has to say about where angels show up. In Luke 2, 29, they showed up announcing the birth of Jesus to Mary. On Luke 2.13, they showed up announcing the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. Matthew 4.11, they showed up following his temptation by Satan in the wilderness to comfort him. In Luke 22.43, they showed up in the Garden of Gethsemane to strengthen him. In Revelation 5.11 and 12, we see this. Around the throne of Jesus, John saw... Ten thousands of ten thousands and thousands of thousands saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom 
and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Those are significant events. The one I just mentioned is a picture of Jesus in heaven. But God found it appropriate that the holy angels were present at these events. I choose to believe they were there. I don't want to qualify by saying scripture is silent on this. But I choose to believe they were there as with Satan. Where else would they be? Where else would all the holy angels, the ten thousands of ten thousands and thousands of thousands, where would they be if they weren't there? There's an event in 2 Kings 6.17 where you remember, you Bible heads, the prophet Elijah prayed that the eyes of his servant would be opened so that his servant could see that they were more with us than there are against us. Remember that story? And so Elisha prays to God, open the eyes of my servant. They were surrounded by the Syrian army. He said, open the eyes of my servant. When God opened the eyes of the servant, he saw that the mountain was full of God's horses and chariots of fire surrounding Elisha. Now, the criminals with Jesus are nailed to the cross. The two thieves are probably screaming, begging for mercy, pleading, cursing, crying. The crowd is shouting, jeering, mocking. It's cold, it's loud, it's crowded. The scene is violent. It's bloody, it's brutal, it's cruel, it's inhumane. Surrounded by all of this, all of this chaos, surrounded by this noise and all of this that's going on. Jesus parts his lips and begins to say something. It's a prayer. And surprisingly, it was not a prayer for himself. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He could have prayed, Father, help me. Father, save me. He could have prayed, Father, judge them. Or Father, destroy them. He could have prayed that The Father would send legions of angels to rescue him. But he prayed for the very people that were crucifying him and mocking him and humiliating him at that very moment. And that includes you and me. Remember, it was our sin that held him on that cross. He prayed aloud so that you and I could hear it and know that He's praying for you and me. And listen to this. Listen to this. According to Wiersbe and Swindoll and Lutzer, some theologians who I read, appreciate, I'm sure you do as well. According to them, the tense of the Greek verb here, said, 
when it said, and he said, Father, forgive them. The tense of that verb conveys the idea of continued past action indicating that Jesus repeated that prayer over and over and over again. Did you know that? I have more response from that. I have the courage to tell you that because these three great theologians have told me that. And when they nailed Jesus to the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. When they dropped the cross into place, he said, Father, forgive them. When they mocked him and hurled insults at him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He was praying that God the Father, at that very moment, the sin sacrifice that he was making on the cross would be applied to them, the ones that were crucifying him. If there was ever a doubt in your mind of whether or not there's an unforgivable sin, this should settle it. If you can be forgiven for murdering the Son of God, you can be forgiven for anything. 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 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Paul lists one sin after another sin after another sin after another sin. And he says to them, and such were some of you in that church who were washed, who were made clean. We've learned from Jesus that no one is beyond forgiveness and no one is beyond prayer. No one. So don't stop praying for that person. Don't stop praying. And you know something else here? Jesus never in the gospel account asked God the Father to forgive anybody of anything. Jesus always granted forgiveness himself. In Matthew 9, 2, the paralytic, he said, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Luke 7, 48, when the woman washed his feet with tears, he said, Your sins have been forgiven. But now he's praying to God the Father, saying, Forgive them. You see, forgiveness is a divine prerogative. That's why when Jesus told this paralytic in Mark 2, 7, your sins are forgiven, the scribe said, who can forgive sins but God only? Well, Jesus is God. He's 100% God. He's also 100% man. But he's no less God because of his humanity. And he's no less man because of his deity. Can you understand that? No, you can't. And neither can I. But because he is God, he can and did set aside his deity. We see that in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, where it said he emptied himself, taken on the form of a bondservant. A bondservant is someone who is indebted to someone. They can't pay the bill, so you put yourself in service to them to work off the debt. That's what Jesus did. 
here in this setting at the cross, he has taken on the form of a bondservant. He's no longer in the place of authority. He had set it aside. He is absolutely, completely identified with you and me as a man, a perfect man. And that's why he's praying, Father, forgive him. Then he goes on to provide a reason why he wants the Father to forgive them. He says they know not what they're doing. Now this statement doesn't mean that they were, that just because they're ignorant of their sins that they can be forgiven. Nor does it mean that everybody at the cross is automatically forgiven. It doesn't mean that they were ignorant of their wrongdoing. Pilate knew that he had condemned an innocent man. The Sanhedrin, who all were there, knew that they had bribed false witnesses. And we know also that the crowd knew it. At the end of this spectacle, <clears throat> as they're going home in Luke 23, 48, we see this. All the crowds, all the crowd, who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, in other words, return home, beating their breast. Only Luke uses this term, beating their breast. He uses it in Luke 18, remember? The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember the tax collector praying and beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Only Luke uses that. And he uses this phrase to describe anguish and remorse. So the crowd, when they left the cross that day, had anguish and remorse because they knew that this was an innocent man. They did not know that they had murdered the Messiah. That's what they didn't know. That's what Christ says. They do not know what they're doing. They were ignorant of who Jesus was. In spite of their attention to the Old Testament scriptures, they failed to recognize their Savior and King when He came. Acts 13, 17 says, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. So the question is, who was Jesus praying for when he said, Father, forgive them? We have no biblical record that he ever prayed for the world. In fact, in John 17, 9, he says, I do not pray for the world but for those whom you've given me. In other words, I pray for those who will believe in me. He prayed for those who were not yet believers, but who would someday become believers. We don't know how many of those were at the cross that day. Well, did God hear and answer that prayer? Of course he did. Unlike you and me, the Son always prayed the Father's will. And the Father always granted His petitions. Now this doesn't mean, as we said, that everyone connected with the crucifixion was forgiven, but only those whom the prayer was intended, the ones who had repented and believed. So who would that be? Who is that? Well, number one, one of the criminals. One of the criminals. Number two, the confessing centurion. 
Number three, weeks later at Pentecost, 3,000 were saved, Acts 2. And a great number of priests came with the faith. We see in Acts 6, 7, a great number, not just some priests came to the faith, a great number of Jewish priests came to the faith. Were they at the cross? Now, John 18 says this, There they crucified him and two other men, one on either side and Jesus in the middle. We don't know for certain why Jesus hung between those two criminals. It could have been Pilate's idea. It could have been the centurion's idea. It may have been the Sanhedrin's idea. None of them may have had any idea why they put Jesus in the middle. But we know this. It was no accident. Much less could there have been an accident on this day, a day and an event that lie at the very center of redemptive history. There are no accidents in the life of Jesus, only appointments. From all eternity, God had decreed that Jesus would die on this day. He would die in Jerusalem by crucifixion between two criminals. All that he decreed came to pass. Jesus was crucified between two criminals because he was working out his gracious providence. God knows even the death of a sparrow or the fall of a hair. Not only does he know it, he decrees it. Now, while Jesus hangs there between these two criminals, something remarkable occurs. Matthew 27, 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from that cross. In the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from that cross. And we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. Now listen to this. The two robbers who had been crucified with him were insulting him with the same words. The same words. Verse 39 said, those passing by were hurling abuse at him. And verse 44, the thieves were using the same words. The word rendered abuse literally means blasphemy. So the two criminals were shouting harsh, perhaps even obscene, things at Jesus concerning sacred things to Jesus. So one thief shouts, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. In other words, save us. And perhaps that criminal expected the other one to take a cue and join in with him. 
But he didn't. Instead, an amazing thing happened. The second criminal began to defend Jesus. He said, don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Only minutes earlier, that same thief had cursed and blasphemed Jesus. Only minutes earlier. And by the way, where are those that we would expect to defend Jesus? Where's Peter? The spiritual one? Where are the disciples? They've scattered. Many of them on their way to Damascus or uh, Emmaus. Where are his countrymen? His countrymen are in the crowd, shouting, demanding his death. When everyone else has turned away, this criminal places himself between Jesus and his accusers and speaks on his behalf. No one had ever noticed this guy. No one was noticing this guy. All eyes were focused on Jesus. He was the star of the show. No one paid any attention to this criminal. The soldiers must have been the first to take notice when he said something. I mean, they'd seen many, many, many crucifixions. They were probably shocked to hear that one actually stopped screaming and begging and pleading and cursing and actually stopped. I can see the soldiers stopping. The priests must have momentarily stopped their shouting in order to observe this. And what about Mary? Mary must have wiped the tears and looked to see what her son was going to say. But the omniscient Jesus knew this was coming. He knew the very moment that thief would say something. He knew every thought in that thief's mind. He knew every word that would fall from that thief's lips. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you dost know it all. Jesus must have looked at him. I can't imagine Jesus not turning and looking at this sheep, straggling into the sheepfold. There came a divinely appointed moment here when one thief became silent and pensive. His silence turned to repentance and his heart was changed in a moment. In Luke 23, 42, Jesus says, the, the thief says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Jesus might have said, you deserve your fate. He might have said, it's too late. Sorry. But remember that promise that Jesus made in John 6, 37? Jesus made a promise to you and me. And to this thief, he said, all that the Father has given me shall come to me. And he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. That thief is coming to Jesus on that cross. At this point, Jesus performs a great miracle. It's greater than one 
with Paul on the road to Damascus where Paul was converted. Paul was morally righteous before his conversion and he was even more so after. Jesus said to this thief, truly, truly, assuredly, solemnly, verily, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. When this thief made that simple request to remember me, he was not an agnostic questioning the existence of God. He was not an atheist denying the existence of God. He didn't view God as distant or indifferent. He feared God. He feared God. God was real to him. He became real to him all of a sudden. He knew that he was only hours away from dying and facing a holy and righteous judge. He wanted to be ready. As far as the biblical record is concerned, nobody else at this cross is asking for forgiveness and for salvation. No one. The crowd is opposing him. The soldiers were laughing at him. The thief's friend is mocking him. And there's no persuasion from anyone to encourage this thief to trust Christ. There's not a pastor or preacher evangelizing him. There's not someone presenting the gospel to him. His conversion had occurred at a time when Jesus appeared to have lost all power to save himself, much less the thief. Jesus was rejected and he was weak and he was dying. His enemies appeared to be triumphant over him. His friends had forsaken him. Public opinion was against him. The crucifixion was inconsistent with him being the Messiah. In spite of all of these obstacles, all of these obstacles, in the absence of all human reason and rationale, the thief believed and confessed that Jesus was Savior and Lord. How could this babe in Christ make such amazing progress in such a brief period of time and under such horrible circumstances? How could it be? Flesh and blood had not revealed this to him. These things came to him through the Holy Spirit. There was no one in the crowd pointing a finger at Jesus saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No one. The Holy Spirit was working in the heart of this thief. So anytime anyone chooses to believe that they are saved by their good deeds or their good person, must consider the thief at the cross. How many times have you asked someone, are you going to heaven? And they say, well, I think so. And you ask, well, uh, how, how do you know you're going to get into heaven? And they usually say, well, I think if I've lived a good life and I've been a good person, I'll get in heaven. This story about the thief completely eliminates that as a possibility. This thief has done nothing good. Nothing. He was helpless. He was hopelessly lost. He was totally depraved. He's guilty. He's condemned. He was in no position to do anything to earn his salvation, either before he got to the cross or after he didn't have the time or opportunity to earn anything. 
He couldn't keep the Ten Commandments. He couldn't obey the Sermon on the Mount. He couldn't go through some religious catechism. Or for that matter, he couldn't even be baptized. All he had was his confession and his repentance and his faith. That's all. It was instantaneous. By the power of God, he placed his faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And there was no external influence. It was before the darkness fell over the cross, which is the last three hours on the cross. It was before the earthquake. It was before the rocks were split, before the temple veil was torn, before the centurion's confession. His faith saved him. It was given to him as a gift from God. For by grace he was saved through faith. And that, that faith, not of himself, it was a gift of God. Not as a result of his works that he might boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It was a gift. It was grace. It was sovereign. It was irresistible. It was free. He had no good works either before or after his salvation. My friends, if he was saved at all, he was saved by grace. That is what this church teaches. Don't let anyone ever tell you that that's not what we teach. You are saved by grace and grace alone. God chose to save this thief under the most unfavorable circumstances imaginable. God deliberately arranged this combination of conditions as a witness to teach you and I that salvation is of the Lord, to teach us not to magnify human efforts to be saved, to teach us that every genuine conversion, every genuine conversion, is a direct result of the operation of the Holy Spirit. There's something else about this amazing salvation. It was certain. It was certain. It wasn't a hope so salvation. Listen again to Jesus. Jesus says, truly, truly. Wouldn't you love to hear Jesus say that to you? Truly. Would you ever doubt him? Truly, I say to you, today you will be in paradise with me. The Lord of glory spoke to this criminal and personally guaranteed him of his salvation. Some people say that we can't be sure if we're saved, that we have to wait to find out, but that's not what God's word says. We can't base our assurance on salvation by how we feel. I feel like I'm saved. You base the assurance of your salvation on what Jesus himself says in the Bible. This is Jesus' word coming from the cross. He says, surely, truly, you will be with me in paradise. He says the same thing right here. In fact, in 1 John 5, 13, it said, These things I have written to you, these things I have written to you, 
who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, you may know you have eternal life. The dying thief knew he had eternal life, that he would be with Jesus in heaven because Jesus gave him a personal guarantee. Then look at this. Jesus says, today, today. The thief simply asked that the Lord remember him in his coming kingdom. If the thief had heard anything about Jesus at all, his prayer, and it's hard to believe he didn't know about Jesus before getting here, then he was probably thinking about the end of the age. The Jews believed that the Messiah would come, that would be the end of the age. So this thief probably thought that if he died, he would go into a state of soul sleep, and then when Jesus came at the end of the age, he'd be with them. But Christ assured him a place in paradise and that he would be with him today. It would be that very day. Not when I come again, but today. This very day when you draw your last breath on this cross, when your heart beats its last beat, immediately after this horrible experience that we're going through, you will be with me. As Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Christ saved us and this thief to have fellowship with him. He says, with me. Do you see that? He will be with me. With me. Heaven will not be heaven without us being with Jesus. John 17, 24. Jesus is praying again for you and he's praying for me. And he's saying, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. This was infinitely more than this thief had asked and infinitely more than you and I can possibly imagine. These two criminals were equally near Jesus, one on either side. Both of them saw and heard everything that occurred for six hours on that cross. Both were notoriously wicked. Both of them suffered horribly. Both were dying slowly and they both knew it. Both needed forgiveness urgently, desperately. One received Christ. One rejected Christ. One died and went to heaven. The other died in his sin. One listened with indifference. One had his eyes opened. And this happens every Sunday in churches throughout the world where the gospel is being preached. Under the same sermon, one will listen with indifference. One will hear and have his eyes open. How about you? Do you identify with one of these thieves? Have you listened to these words this morning with indifference? Are you convinced of your sin as the one thief was and that you need to be remembered by Christ? Are you like that sheep? Broken, wounded, 
straggling to make his way to the fold. Will you join your heart with my heart as we pray and commit these words to the Lord? Father, what a joy it is to be in this house today, to be with your people. be listening to your word, singing your songs, praising you, looking forward to you coming again. What a joy, Father. A glimpse of heaven. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to love this world less, but love you more, Father. Lord, I pray for that one person sitting in here today. That that person would feel a need, a desperate need to be remembered by you when you come again, Father. I pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen.